0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Gipper's Corner. I'm Andrew Musgrove, joined by... John Gibson. And we're going to talk about a Newcastle United player who, for me, probably is the definition of legend. Um, I know that's a term that is overused quite a lot in football. It's a bit of a cliche. And that's not doubting the players we've mentioned previously in this podcast, John, Alan Shearer, Jackie Milburn, Paul Gascoigne, legends of Newcastle United... But when it comes to achieving something for the club, this person is the person that every player that has come after him, every captain, and that gives you a bit of a clue, that has come after him, you know, this is the player that they have to beat if they want to go into the record books, if they want to go into the history books. And we're going to be talking about
1: Bob Monker Yep, absolutely. If absolutely. Uh, a true legend of Newcastle United. An unbelievable story when you look at him. It's... a uh, is a comic book hero, if you like. We had Roy of the Rovers, Well, we have Bob of United, Captain Bob. Uh, there's been no more romantic story, no more fairy tale than this guy. I mean, he was brought up within the club, having come down as a teenager... He was in the side that won promotion 1965. He won the European Cup 69. He won the Anglo-Italian Cup, two Texaco Cups. And his last game in a black and white shirt was at Wembley in an FA Cup final. You can't get better than that. And top up, he was a, a skipper, he was a defender of the faith, the guy at the back that kept the goals out, and then scored a hat-trick in a European final, which is phenomenally one of the true Harvey heroes and one of the true legends, as you say, we use the word far too often these days. If a fella plays 80 games for Newcastle and has five decent ones, he's suddenly a legend. No, he's not. We're talking about real legends here. And Bob Monker was exactly that. Totally agree with you there, John. And just before we kick on, we're also
0: recording this for YouTube. So we've got a few cameras knocking about. We're recording in a local pub called Lanehead in writing. But we've got a camera right there those watching on youtube and we've got a camera Damn. right there which is on john's uh face so we thought we'd try and see if there's a bit of an audience to see some person of course those listening on the podcast thank you as usual for tuning in we do appreciate it and we're only this far in thanks to your loyalty really um we'll kick on then with bob yeah uh, funny enough he was in this pub just a year ago doing a talking and he had the he had the the, the punters here in the palm of his hand and He's a very True. funny guy, and we'll get on to this later in the show, but he, he seems to just understand what Newcastle United means to the fans, to the area, to the region, and I guess when you were there for 12 years or so as a player and then a captain, and as the last captain to win anything for Newcastle United, that that's a given, isn't it? You, you, you're going you're gonna to quickly understand what it means to play for Newcastle United.
1: Yeah, like so many players that achieved success at Newcastle, when it was all over and you can go back home to where you're from, it's amazing how many players don't and, and make the rest of their life here. Like Bob Monker who's a Scot, like David Craig didn't go back to Ireland, like Supermacht didn't go back to London. Uh, they realise that this place is extra special and that they have a special place in Newcastle's history and want to stay around the fans and around the club. I mean, the pinnacle for for Bob, quite obviously, was July 11th, 1969, which is when he completed his hat-trick over two legs against Uspestosa and picked up Newcastle's only ever European trophy. Um, A very, very special moment for him, special moment for me both as as a punter and as a hacker who was covering the game. And uh, I was very close to Bob. At the time, I was busy ghosting his autobiography called United We Stand. And um, as a consequence, after we won the Cup, which was deep into the summer in mid-June... Bob come down to my house, I was living in Whitley Bay at the time, he'd come down to my house to enjoy a few sherbets and talk exactly what we could remember of this epic journey where we just entered the European Trophy and thought we'd go out at any time and ended up winning it. And I remember him pulling up outside my house, it was a lovely summer's day, come through, went on the garden, and he said, oh, hold on, Gibbo, I've forgotten something, back out of the car, and he pulled the... First cup off the back seat. It was lying, thrown on the back seat in his car. Picked up the first cup, come through, stuck it in the middle of the garden at the back. We are sitting round in in chairs, having a few sherbets in the cups there. My little girl, Sally, at the time, who was four or five, uh, was playing with a cup and sticking mud in it and whatever, whatever. And it was a, a very special moment, which at that time you don't think about. You just think, ah, this is the way it is and we're going to get loads more of this. The only trouble is that I'm sitting here, how many years later? More than half a century. It's 51, isn't it? Aye, aye. And we haven't done anything like that since. So you you begin to appreciate what that meant. And it meant an awful lot. And it's staggering because how times have changed. I remember, as a result of that, my book, Incredibly, I was writing a book, Newcastle Night's FC Story. Before this run started, I was commissioned to write this book. And they said, just do a chapter on Europe, you know, in the book, so it's up to date. So I did a chapter on Europe, but they got through. So I did another chapter on Europe, and they got through again. And it went all the way through to final. Eventually, the book was virtually... And because we'd done it um, game by game came out very, very quickly after winning the Cup. By the beginning of the next season, this book was out and it caused a sensation because Newcastle won a a European trophy. I remember going on a Saturday morning to a signing session for this book in town at the bookshop around Grey's Monument and Newcastle were playing at home that afternoon. And yet, at 12 o'clock, we were signing books in this bookshop Every single first team player was at the signing session three hours before the kickoff in a, in a top flight game in that afternoon. Can you imagine that happening now? Every single one at a long table with me in the middle. And at the end of the table was the European First Cup. And people come in, bought a book, went along the line, got them all sold, had a quick pick with the First Cup and went off. The The queues were tried twice round Waterstone's shop at the time that's because the, the that's what it meant to the fans and all the players went direct from the shop up to St James's Park and played the match that afternoon can you imagine the club letting that happen these days I can't can't at all let's talk about the first Cup just
0: briefly then because it is the one thing that Bob is quite rightly remembers for when Newcastle were first drafted into the competition you know it wasn't really on the cards and then obviously the rules about one club per city playing in the competition yeah. came into play yeah what what was bob's initial reacting reaction as captain was it right we've got europe we'll go and enjoy it and see how far we can get or was there a, a desire to
1: win it was there a feeling that they could go pretty far in the competition i think we were all utterly naive at the time first of all we we're quite staggered that we got in because we didn't expect that we would get in. There was some dispute about how many clubs they would allow in from England. It was only when the draw come through into the Chronicle officers that in there was Newcastle drawn against Fienaude that we knew 100% that Newcastle were in. I had Joe Harvey on the line, on the phone, with an open line waiting for the draw to find out if we were in it or not. Uh, there was absolute relief. We were in through the back door, we'd only finished 10th in the, in the First Division and yet made Europe on the one city one club rule. And no, there wasn't initially a thought that we could win it. it. This was just going to be fun and we're going to have a flipping good go at it and it was going to be a few days out on the continent for punters and for players and for journalists and we'll see what happens. It only dawned on us as we kept going. Um, that there was a possibility of winning us. I mean, we thought we could win it after the first game when we swept the away 4 out, And we thought we had no chance after the second game when we went out there and lost 2 out because we were lucky to get out. Um, but we were that naive camaraderie produced football and we swept them away because they didn't know how to handle big Win Davies uh, in the air but the amazing thing from Bob's point of view that one quite dramatic because he started off by missing the first two games against Fiannaud uh, because in a pre-season friendly against Hibbs up in Edinburgh and uh, Bob had been brought up at Kirk Liston just outside of Edinburgh, he did a cartilage in his right knee, had to have an up, and so in the first two games there was he went from not being in the side to skipper in them, lifting the trophy and scoring a hat-trick in the final. And such was the way of football in those days that when Newcastle went over the Fiernoad for the second leg, with the skipper injured, but he was going to be the pivotal part of the run, Newcastle United didn't bother taking him over to Fiernoid for the game. He actually hitched a lift on the supporters' plane to go and sit with the supporters in the crowd to watch Newcastle United play. This was Captain Bob of Newcastle United, captain of Scotland, captain of Newcastle United, and the bloke was going to score a hat-trick in the final. Newcastle didn't take him to the first game. He went with the punters and sat up in the stand with the punters. Let's talk about the two-legged final then.
0: Bob gets a hat-trick, and I think the running joke is is that He didn't score many goals, and somehow he grabbed three in arguably Newcastle's most important
1: game of recent times. Oh, without a shadow of doubt. I mean, he didn't. He was a sweeper. I mean, we don't really employ sweepers these days because that meant he actually played behind the centre-half. One centre-half, he played behind him, which meant he was almost on the toes of the goalkeeper, Willie McFall. Yet... Come crunch, and Bob always went on about this, he scored goals. It was quite amazing. I mean, obviously the most famous is the hat-trick in the European First Cup final. But as a kid, when we won for the first time in the club's history, the FA Youth Cup, against Wolves, the winning goal at St James's Park, 20,000 there to watch the kids, winning goal at St James's Park, Bob Munker. When we won the Texaco Cup, in extra time, just before we played in the final of the FA Cup, winning goal, Bob Munker. And then three in the in the final um, against uh, if the first cup. The most famous match Newcastle ever took part in, there wasn't a match, the game that never was, against Nottingham Forest up here in the FA Cup, when because fans spilled onto the pitch, we were ordered to replay the game, and it was scrubbed from the records. Bob always chunt us on about that, how he was robbed of a goal, because we were 3-1 down against Nottingham Forest, playing with 10 men, because Bob's partner, Pat Howard, had been sent off, no chance. 3-1 down, 10 men, no chance. We win 4-3, we're 3-3, and who scores a winning goal? Bob Munker. He did that, but every time he chunt us on at me about scoring the killer goals and scoring the cup final goals, I'll say to him, yeah... But in the end, you let me down, pal. Because your last game for Newcastle United was the FA Cup final of 74. What a way to go out. But he didn't score, you know. And uh, Liverpool and uh, Kevin Keegan beat us. So I always say, what was the matter with you, Bob? Where was that goal that day? (laughs) Just back to the first
0: cup ever so briefly, because the half-time team talk is something that Bob very often speaks about, you know, asking where's Joe Harvey and suddenly the door bursts open and we've covered it many times yeah. on this podcast, but I just love the story that, you know, he's sitting there and he's, 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 you know, he's, he's trying to drum up the, the dressing room and he needs the manager to come in and, and, and help him. And I, and what I find really interesting is that is that many people look at Bob Monker being in the mold of Joe Harvey because there were no two, excellent leaders, two excellent leaders, two excellent defenders
1: and, and obviously to a great cooks. extent, they looked alike as yeah. well with the dark hair and the craggy and the way they played. I mean, he was a total uh, new version of his manager um, and he was very proud to be so and Joe loved him because he was that, of course. Um, but yeah, I mean, Bob saying he, he, his head was down, the sweat was dripping off his forehead onto the, between the legs onto the ground at half time and he's thinking... I need the boss now, I need him desperately. What am I going to say if the boss doesn't come in to lift the boys? Because we were being slaughtered and only Willie McFall kept winning the game. And suddenly the, the door burst open, Joe found difficulty finding his way from the edge of the pitch back into the dressing room. He throws a fag out his mouth, Joe, dumps it and just said, what's the matter with you, lad? We'll win 3-2. If you score a goal against this lot, he says, they'll fold Remember these lot of foreigners, he says. They, they will fold. Their bottle will go. They will fold. All you've got to do is go out and score a goal. And slammed slam the door behind them. And, and Bob thought, aye, but how do we do that? We haven't been <laughs> over the halfway line yet. And what happens? we we'll go out. We'll score a goal almost immediately. Who scores it? Bob Moncur to complete his hat-trick. And sure enough, as Uncle George said, they folded. Can you just tell
0: me, if, if you can remember, the first moment you spoke to Bob after the game yep. what it was like what he was like his his reaction his feeling I mean what what a, what a moment
1: Oh euphoric um, in those days we were all part of the family and on the final whistle the first thing I did was make my way to the dressing room because that was okay went to the dressing room went in and he has, um Win Davies with a Face cup which looked like a yard of ale you know the, the yard of ales, yeah. and it's full of champagne and he's lifting it up trying to drink it and all that happens is that it soaks him to death <laughs> like and bob's in the corner and i looked across at bob and he gave me a wink and went the book will be okay now the book will be okay now we'll <laughs> say he was talking about united we stand uh, not not mine um but he was absolutely elated um the amazing thing is, you know, when, when we got, this is Europe, when we got the medals, they didn't all go up and, and get a medal each after the game. Bob went up as skipper, got the European First Cup and was given a tray with, with the medals on, which were miniature European First Cups. And he was just given a tray with, with 15 medals on, hand them out to the lads you know, in, instead of them all getting a medal individually with the handshake, um, he was absolutely filled to bits. Joe was sitting in the corner beaming away. You've got to remember it was Joe's birthday. He was 51, I think, that day. Uh, can you imagine that is the greatest birthday present you could ever have? And he was just sitting in the corner, and the lad struck up, Happy birthday to the gaffer. Um, Wonderful, wonderful moments, but none of us actually thought. We think and we're opening the door to regular winning of trophies. Nobody ever dreamt that all that team would be old-age pensioners still being fated in the city as the last people to win a meaningful trophy for Newcastle United, which it was. But, I mean, you know, I've talked about Bob in the European years, Andrew, being this incredible fairy tales-type guy. I mean, I remember later on we played Porto in, in, in Portugal and uh, he was flat on his back um, in the hotel when we were away. He only had a bowl of soup for two days. Uh, we were playing the next day. He'd gone out with the team to a special function for Newcastle United that was put on for Newcastle United. He couldn't eat the meal. He curled up... On a chair in the corner, went to sleep. The club doc had to wake him up. He was so ill with gastroenteritis. And the panic was, this is how Newcastle were naive and flew by the seat of their pants. They travelled without a cover goalkeeper for uh, Willie McFall because John Hope, the cover goalkeeper, was injured. And we didn't bother taking the cover goalkeeper. We decided if anything happened to Willie McFall, Bob Monker would go on goal can you believe he could have been the biggest goal-scoring goalkeeper we'd ever had in the history of the club? The, the And this guy, who was a cover goalkeeper, was lying in bed, and our skipper, and our centre-half, the granite rock, looking as if he didn't play, did play, and it, it worked out a treat. I'm just going to show you this picture, John, which is one of my most
0: favourite pictures of Bob, and we'll, for those watching on YouTube, we'll uh, edit it in later on. Um, but here is... Uh, John, you see it there. So, just to describe it, we've got we've got Bob holding the cup. We've got Joe Harvey um, and Seymour with a glass Stan of, with a glass of whiskey and a few of their directors sitting on the plane, just full of laughs. It's a, it's a wonderful picture. Um, yeah. What what memories spring back about that? Were you were you on the plane at that? Yeah,
1: thing? of course I was. Course I was. <laughs> uh, I think I may have been lying on the floor at the back at that stage. <laughs> I'm not quite certain, but yeah, I was. I was there. Um, you know what I love about it was a, the absolute naivety of the whole trip uh, through Europe, not just the trip into Budapest, because there was this there was huge camaraderie. That's one of the things that got Newcastle United to where they were in Europe. The team spirit was absolutely enormous. But there was a sort of, this is fun and we're going to make the best of it situation. And when Bob, when we docked on that plane at Newcastle Airport and Westwood and um, Harvey said to Bob, you've got to go out first and take the cup with you. He said, don't embarrass me, don't be silly. I mean, what for? I'll feel an absolute fool. They said, you get to the front and you go out first. And he opened the doors and the place was packed. All the roof of the airport was packed with fans Cheering and waiting for Newcastle United, he was absolutely flabbergasted because he wasn't expecting that, and all the way down on the coach to st james's park where which was packed with fans and full of fans waiting to to welcome the team back uh, all the way, he was absolutely amazed i mean I remember going down traveling from the airport down to St james 's Park and Bob they opened the roof of this of the coach, and Bob they pulled the table into the aisle of the coach, so that Bob and the players could stand on the table, so they could stick their heads out of the roof of the coach. And Bob, at one stage, stuck his head out the roof, and he brought the cup up, to wave to the fans, and held it up in there and waved to the fans. And it hit uh, electricity pylon uh, that was coming across the road, and sparks flew all over the shop. I mean, we almost had a dead skipper on our hands, and. The next day when we actually looked at the cup, there were scar marks on the cup. You know, the black burn marks where you get where electricity is involved. And we were just wacky the whole way through. It was like, you know, it was like Casey's Court. It was fun. It was wonderful. And I think that's what made it extra special. But there was no sense of a feeling within the club that they'd created history, which they had done, because we haven 't won year before, but it would never happen again for an eternity
0: and you were driving down to St James's Park you with obviously the team, and like you say bob' he 's flabbergasted by the amount of people who have come out to see him he 's flabbergasted as he walks out the airport. What did he say to you did he because I imagine you were kind of you you knew what was going to happen soon as he stepped out that door I imagine yeah you, you knew yeah yeah because i I, I
1: was a uh, a Geordie who was around as a you little... Were one of them. you were one of them. Of course, you were the fans. of course. And, by the way, I still am. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, I was. and But I was there as a little kid the last time we'd won something, when we won the, cup, the FA Cup three times in the 50s. And people like Jackie Milburn, who was on the trip with me as a, one of the journalists, and uh, Len Shack knew exactly the history of the club and how crackers Newcastle United went. I mean... Bob knew by the time '74 come round in the FA Cup final, and we lost it. He knew then what sort of reaction we'd get. And the place was packed when we came back. And we were lucky if we got over the halfway line twice in the '74 Cup final. But that was the devotion of the fans. Do you think that moment that he walks out
0: of the airport, or he walks into St James's Park with the Fares Cup in his hand, yeah. is that the moment? Do you think that Bob suddenly realised? What it meant to the club and what it meant to the to the fans and the city and the area. I'm not saying, you know, that he was maybe he, he didn't really understand it prior to that, but was that the moment when it, it fully clicked into
1: place? And that that's stayed yes, with them all this time. I think, in fairness, it did. I mean, every time we went away in the first Cup uh, around Europe and the number of fans that travelled, I mean, the Chronicle used to run trips as, for fans as well as the supporters club etc and they were packed they were absolutely packed. People were coming back to Newcastle not getting back but three days later after the after the away leg because they were coming back by car and then ferry and then car again up to Newcastle. They were getting lost when they got drunk after the game because Newcastle was through uh, and eventually staggered back home so, and the town was heaving and buzzing with the ex Expectation of what was new but there was always the feeling that we'll do well and we'll see how far we'll go oh crikey we're going some distance now but I think we had to beat Glasgow Rangers in the semi-final to think we can win this but of course then everybody told us we couldn't you know if you were Bill Shankly if you were uh, Don Revy if you were Jock Steen all the top managers were saying this is Ushbest, best side in Europe you've got no chance against these we beat them home and away you mentioned there Glasgow Rangers and obviously
0: we know the famous story of a, a riot on at the pitch. How quick did Bob
1: move at that moment? He was never one that was the paciest. I used to always say he was our Bobby Moore uh, because they played in the same position. If there'd been a 100-yard dash between Bobby Moore and Bob Moncair... The winning time would have been something like two minutes forty five seconds because <laughs> they they tended to walk backwards rather than forwards. They had no no pace whatsoever, but I tell you what they did have they had They were quick here they were quick with their brain, and they anticipated they knew where the second ball would drop. They were as strong as an ox they were never knocked off the ball. They read the ball terrifically and they inspired their sides. They were very much alike. And, of course, they played against each other. One was captain of England and one was captain of Scotland. Uh, So it was very much alike. But I think the... Certainly, I think when we played Rangers down here, I think a few of the lads never moved quicker (laughs) than they did that day because when the riot started and the bottles started coming onto the pitch from the Rangers fans, uh, who all of a sudden realised they were going to lose, um, by Jove, we went down that tunnel at a rapid rate or not, so there's there's no question about that. Uh, Wonderful wonderful memories the first cup and as I say with I mean the the thing with with Bob was that he was very much in Joe Harvey's mould is what you were, were talking about um and I honestly thought and will come to eventually that he would do what Joe did that he would go away and come back as a as a Newcastle United manager mm-hmm. because if ever anybody looked a future Newcastle United manager Bob Moncur did um we had wonderful camaraderie during that time, and I got on the inside of it to a, to a great extent because uh, one of my great friends, who become one of Bob's great friends because I introduced him, was Ian Lafonade, the writer who's done um, Off Weeders End Pet, The Likely Lads, you name it, he did it, Lovejoy with Ian McShane, etc. etc. I got to know. Um, Ian, very, very well, because I lived at Whitley Bay. His mum, who we all called Andy May, lived round the corner from me. She said to me one day when she saw me, hey, my, my son would love to meet you um, because he's a Newcastle United fan. I said, oh, well, that's great. She said, he's in London, but I said, well, when he comes up, you know, give us a shout and we'll come round and have a couple of beers. Never knew what he did, who he was, and then I went round for the couple of beers, and it turned out to be Lafreniere, who had the greatest estate on his hands at the time, which was likely likelihood. Because he was obsessed with Newcastle, I introduced him to Bob Monkey. I was writing Bob's book at the time. Ian followed us everywhere we went. He went to uh, European games, away. this is before he went to live in Hollywood, when he lived in, in London. Uh, he followed us wherever we went. And he... he did everything to support the club. In fact, in 1970, I remember once, but before we get onto to that, I remember once when we were playing Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. And Chelsea was Ian's second club. When he was in London and he couldn't get Newcastle matches because he lived in the Chelsea area, he went and watched Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. We were playing Chelsea just before Christmas at Stamford Bridge. And so Ian thought he would like to do something special to mark the occasion. So he said to me, look... Friday night, before the game, for the team and Joe and yourself, etc., I'll put on a film show. Private one, open the theatre, put it on a private film show, the boys uh, can come along. Now, in those days, Newcastle United used to get a train down to London. They got into London about half past 10 at night. They went straight to the great north the the straight to bed. So, obviously, you couldn't get there 10.30 at night if there's a film show on. So, I actually asked Joe... If they could go down early. And Joe said to the board, we're going down. Can you imagine these days? Joe said, we're going down early because there's going to be a film show on for and all that. So the wall caught the one o'clock train, went down in the hotel and went over to Soho to watch watch this film. Now, what he put on, and I just making a note here, he had a showing of Newcastle winning the 1911 FA Cup final against Bradford City. Can you imagine this? You know, he, he also had the highlights of 1951 when we won the FA Cup against Blackpool and Joe was skipper, and then we watched Kelly's Heroes, which was the the big film at the time. Um, we all got taxis, went across there. Rodney Buse was sitting in the back. Rodney was starring in The Lightly Lads at the time. He showed me afterwards. He turned his lapel over afterwards. And in the back of the lapel was a Chelsea badge because he was a Chelsea fan. And he said, I didn't want to insult the boys, so I put it on the back of the lapel. I said, by the way, that's a good story for the Chronicle. The Geordie out of the likely lads supports Chelsea. Only he wasn't a Geordie, of course, but he he, he was laughing. And we watched that game and the lads were laughing their socks off when they saw the 51 Cup final. You know, the baggy shorts and the brill-creamed hair and all that. But they weren't laughing at the end when when the last shot was Joe Harvey on the shoulders of all the players with the FA Cup. And he just turned to the team and said, hey, you lot, would you like to try doing that someday? Uh, and he got, the, he got the last laugh. But what I was about to say, Ian Laffinay organised the cup final weekend of 74. Again, we did it, not the club. He organised for... The players' wives on the night before the cup final to all go and see his show in the West End, which was Barnum, Stoll, and uh, Michael Crawford. So we all—I went out there with the wives and we watched that that night. The next day, we at Wembley, and the reception at the night, which is organised before win, lose, or draw, he organised that completely. And we were at that, and if you remember, we were lucky to get nil. We lost 3-0 to Liverpool to Kevin Kagan and Toschak. Um, and I always remember, Ian put it on, it was wonderful. And then I remember halfway through the reception, I'm just mingling with people, And I go across the scene and who's standing next to him, Lord Westwood, and he's slating Lord Westwood about how Newcastle, if they don't get more ambitious, if they don't do this, if they don't do that, are going to get all these defeats and never win something again. Now, if you think, if you fast forward from 74 to now, we haven't uh, won anything again. And the same accusations could be applied to Newcastle's uh, leadership from the boardroom today. So now it's changed, baby. <laughs> um, the, the, the kind of the newfound fame that came
0: with Captain Newcastle obviously went up a level when you win the Fairs Cup. How did Bob manage that? How did he deal with that? Because we all know what it's like in modern day and it's obviously yeah. a bit different, but you know, it's still back yeah. in the, the, the 69, 70s, if you're walking down the street, you, you, you know, you're going to get pulled aside. You're going to be wanting sure. f- for photographs and such. So sure. how did Bob deal with that?
1: Well, he was he was a born leader, you know. I mean, he was Joe Harvey reincarnated. He was an absolute born leader of the 50s side. Um, and he handled it brilliantly. He always handled the punters brilliantly and the team in the dressing room. I mean, on the pitch, Bob was Joe Harvey's voice. Out there, Joe's on the sideline. He would do it on the pitch. He organised the team if if things went wrong, if there was ill-discipline within the dressing room, that would answer to Bob as well as to Joe Harvey. Now, if you knew both of them, you didn't want to cross them two, no, thank you. That is not a good idea. Um, and he handled punters brilliantly. He was a good, good PR. But I mean,
0: to be Newcastle United captain, to get to that stage, because it's fair to say that he wasn't always a first team. Regular. He didn't just fit into that first team straight away. It took a bit of time, no, didn't it, no. for him to become the player that we remember now. And what was that down? Was that down to him just developing as a player? And was it down to him having that desire to to become this top yeah. class player, as well as Joe Harvey sticking by? Did Joe Harvey spot something and say, you know, there's, there's, there is something there?
1: Yeah, I think it was all those things. I mean, he inevitably went through a period when his career was almost over when he was a kid I mean, I act as, as a go-between with Lol Morgan, who was manager of Norwich City, to get Bob transferred transfer to Norwich City. Can you imagine if I'd done that? I would have been uh, run out of town. But uh, <laughs> at that time, Bob wasn't getting in the side and, um, you know, it looked as if he might go away. What we've got to realise as well, Andrew, is that his lack of pace when he was a kid and he wasn't always played as a sweeper. He was played as an inside forward. He was played as a right-off. He was plays a fullback at times and sometimes his lack of pace when he went out from the centre of the pitch was exposed and so that people say oh he's one pace does he get up and down quick enough he had to find his right position and with Harvey he did find his right position which was A sweeper. If you'd tried to play Bobby Moore in any other position, the one he played in, he wouldn't have become the legend he did. He had to find the right position. But he always had that determination, he always had the leadership qualities, and they came through in abundance, and he become and is still one of the great legends we've had.
0: Did Harvey spend extra time with him working with him to get him to the level that we remember him
1: as? No, Joe never spent any time with anybody in terms of <laughs> coaching them because he couldn't go. I mean, Joe thought a coach was some the bus you got on a Saturday to go to the game. Uh, Joe wasn't a coach at all. He had trainers who did that. He was a man manager. He was the bloke that got players to run through brick walls from and did it. In various different ways, he handled personalities, he handled Hibby much different. he handled Supermac much different the he handled Bob Monker, etc, et etc cetera, et cetera. Bob monker didn 't need much handling once you instilled the confidence into him that he was a proper player, then he would look after that was it. he would look after everything himself and um he did that, and you know is there a better platform? When you're going to leave, he become an adopted Geordie and he's still Mm. an adopted Geordie today for all. He was born in Scotland. Um, And if you're going to leave your club, and inevitably you are, you can't play for life, then is there a better way to, to leave than the FA Cup final? Yes, there is, if you won it and you picked up the trophy in Yarn, That's a better way. But outside of that, your final game in a black and white shirt to be at Wembley with you, Skipper, Is quite something. What was staggering, Andrew, was not that that was his final game because we all realised he was coming to the end of of the line, but what happened next? Because if you've become a Newcastle United legend, if you've picked up a European trophy, if you've scored a hat-trick in the final, the last thing we expect is that you're going to go away and sign for Sunderland. I mean, first of all, how dare you? And second of all, Sunderland ain't going to have you because the fans are going to hate you. Um, and the ironic thing is, that only came about because who was manager of Sunderland at the time? Bob Monker, uh, Bob Stokoe, who had played at Newcastle, won the FA Cup with Newcastle and was actually still on the books when Bob arrived as a little kid out of Scotland. So he knew, and of course he played golf with Bob all the time. So he knew the leadership qualities that was there and he signed him. You
0: mentioned there the leadership qualities just before we get on to that dreaded trip down the road. How did he handle some of the characters in the dressing room? Because... You did have some lively players. I mean, oh. you had, like you mentioned, Mark Terry Hibbert. But you know, Win Davies, okay, quiet player. But like, you still need as a captain to be able to deal Jinky with someone. Smith. Yeah. So I mean, various different characters. How did Bob, as a captain,
1: manage with them? A little bit through camaraderie, a lot through fear, and I mean, that in the nicest possible way. You didn't. In if you talked to all the players. They played in the 50s, we didn't want to cross Joe. And this is Jackie Milburn and great stars and Bobby Mitchell and superstars, didn't want to cross Joe. You didn't want to cross Bob, are you? We, we, um,
0: you managed. We mentioned there how he was kind of in the mould of Joe Harvey. Yeah. So was it also the other way around that maybe Bob um, moulded himself on Joe Harvey? Did he look at Joe Harvey's leadership techniques and say, right, I'm going to channel a little bit of that? Into what i do. I think, yeah,
1: I think it' come naturally, but without thinking about it, if you've got a good manager there, without thinking about it, you take the best things subconsciously out of him, and it it would the thing was it was second nature to Bob to to act like this, mm. uh, and he was a responsible captain, he didn't just flick the coin up on the pitch, he was captain Monday to Friday. D- did you ever come to
0: you, I don't know at some point through Bob's career and kind of just said, you know what, I've I found my captain. You know, I, I, you know, like, you know, I had the faith, I knew he would do it. Was there a moment where he, he kind of just he just said, yeah, yeah, he's he's my leader?
1: Well, I talked to, to Joe in depth about Bob when we produced the book United We Stand, which was Bob's autobiography, which I ghosted. And I got Joe Harvey to do the uh, forward for the book. And we talked about it a lot. And he said, "You know, Gibbo." He said, uh, "You know why I like Bob so much?" And I said, "Well, I can think of a few reasons, like he's uh, <laughs> scoring hat tricks in cup finals and that." He said, "Aye, but Gibbo, you know what? He's a replica of me. It's just like looking in the mirror." He said, "When I look at Bob, it's just like looking in the mirror." And um, I think he appreciated and felt reassured that when his back was turned, as a manager. Bob, Bob had his back, and and he did. Bob was a, was a very loyal man. He was a man, you know, you get footballers that are scallywags. They, they're good players, but they're scallywags. My other great mate, Super Mac, when he was a player, could be a scally on occasions. How do I know that? Because normally I was with him when he <laughs> was a scally. Uh, but he could be a scally. Bob Moncur wasn't a scally. He played it the right way did it the right way and expected others to have his high standards. And if they didn't, then said to him. How did he fit in maybe in later life, on his later
0: career? Because obviously he became a legend and we've mentioned there Jackie Milburn, obviously Joe Harvey's another one. But, um, you know, how did he fit in being put into that category? Because it is, it's something being a great captain and winning a cup, but then to be after all this time as well, put into that category of great legends of the club, mm. where, you know, you name 10 legends of Newcastle United and he's in the top five. So how, how did he deal with that right at the start of that kind of, um, that, that being given to him, that, you know, that title of being a legend of the club?
1: Well, I, I actually think he was born to, be. to the job. I think he was born to the job because it come naturally to him. And, um, And in some ways, you know, I think that side of him, the bit off the field, because you need that to become a legend as well, leader of men, the the holding together of the team, I think that was more natural than his God-given ability in the first place. I think the battle he had to win was to be a good player and he won that battle early on. When he was going in and out of the side that won the promotion side in 65, and Clark and Craig were coming through at the same time, and you were saying to all of them, will they make it, will they not? Because a few of those boys fell by the wayside. I mean, one of the most talented boys we had, Alan sudick didn't make it here and made it at Blackpool. Um, so that sort of thing happened. But with Bob, I think a lot of it become natural, and his standards have never slipped, and he is the same today as, as he was then. He cares about the club exactly the same way today as he did then, um, and I just think he was born to the job he did, and his battle was not to say, "Oh, how do I handle the cloak of fame? It was more to say, am I going to be a proper player and what's my best position? Once they were solved, then it was full steam ahead. You mentioned there him being exactly the same then as he is
0: today. And I was going to ask you about him off the pitch. Because when he was here doing the talking, uh, you and I were up first for about half an hour. And he Bob pulled up in his car and he walks in. And we'd, we've got a rocking chair here in the pub. And we had to move it because we had to get more punters in. And we, we had it in the doorway. And Bob just sneaks in. He just sits himself down in this rocking chair. He's, he puts one leg on top of the other his hands under his chin and just looked like a don looked like something out like of The Godfather and just sat there at the back didn't make any entrance just sat there and waited until you would finish your stories and I thought you know so, I mean because he, he's in a cast he's a legend you know you expect an entrance but
1: no he was making notes <laughs> to say to see what we did wrong and what we did right and uh, if we were all up to scratch he made notes Bob. Uh,
0: but, I, I but, guess the point there was that like he's not He's not flush with this reputation, you know what I mean? He's, no. he's not, I am Bob moncrazy he's, he's a he's just a lovely,
1: genuine bloke. Sure. And he came back to Newcastle United eventually, but, um, which is where he's, he is now. But, of course, I, I must tell the tale about him going to Sunderland before we come on to quickly dealing with his managerial role. And um, when he was signed for Sunderland, as I say, that was a huge shock. You, you expect him to go somewhere, but not to Sunderland. And uh, it was 1974, just after the FA Cup final, and the World Cup finals were taking place in 74. And Bob was a, a superstar of that era, and he was on an ITV panel for, to cover the World Cup finals. Uh, and the panel was Brian Clough, the Dug, Derek Dugan, Big Jack Johnson. Paddy Crevin, Manchester United in Scotland, Malcolm Allison and Bob, that's a fair panel. Mm. And Brian Moore, who was the doyen of, of, of um, commentators, was the head of the panel. And um, one, and they all stayed in the same hotel in London because the World Cup was going on and on. And Bob said to Brian Moore one night when they were having a beer at the bar, uh, oh, I'm joining the Sunderland. And... Brian Moore was absolutely flabbergasted. He said, You what? And the United guy he joined Sunderland. And he said, Yeah, I am I. So Moore, the professional, come out and him very, very quickly and he said, I tell you what, how about do how about signing for Sunderland on the telly, live on the telly. Before one of the World Cup games, when you're sitting on a panel, we'll get we'll put it down, Bob Stokoe, there's the paper, and you sign for Sunderland. What a coup that is for us. Cluffy who's on the panel, hears this, and immediately says to Bob, what do you sign for Sunderland for? He said, well, decent club, and they were in the second division. And Cluffy said, you don't want to sign for Sunderland, it's a rubbish club. Remember, I used to play for Sunderland, I can tell you, it's a rubbish club, you won't have a good time there, it's horrible, you should come and sign for me. He was at Brighton at the time, you know, the, the one place he went apart from Leeds where it didn't really work and he'd split with Taylor and that was something to do with it and he went on for a couple of days before the signing was going to take place about how you shouldn't get he actually got a hold of Camille Bob's wife a lovely 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 lady who I've known for donkey donkey's years appreciate a friendship he actually sort of Got a hold of her when she come down to London and spiralled her off to have a meal or something and say, don't let your lad sign for Sunderland. It's a rubbish club. You won't like it at Sunderland. And you've been in Newcastle and you're going to Sunderland and the fans are late, everybody hate late, et cetera, et cetera. Bob is as loyal as it's possible to be. He'd given his word to Stokoe. He liked Stokoe because he knew him from his Newcastle days and he was going to sign for him. And he did sign for Sunderland in front of the television cameras and... Brian Clough, lovely man that he is, come across after he, he, he uh, signed, give Bob a big kiss and Camille a big kiss. And yes, he give Bob a big kiss. That was the way Clough he was. He give you a kiss. Uh, and said, hey, I just wanted Bob to sign for me. He said, actually, Sunderland's a wonderful club. I had a wonderful time there. I wish him all the very best. And But... It was nice that he was ruffling the water, and of course he did. Nick a Newcastle, legend, may I say? Just after that, when he signed, um, it's a Frank w- Clark, Frank Clark, indeed, and then won everything. And um, the interesting thing was Robert. The naivety—I say he's a shrewd and he's a politician, and I can't think of a better politician, by the way, than than Bob uh, Monker, which is why I always thought he'd make a good manager because he's a politician with the directors. Uh, and he's been a very, very good politician during the uh, the Ashley years when he's needed to be a politician because he's been involved officially with Newcastle United as well. But um, he drove he drove to Roker Park for a pre-season friendly. He played in the 74 Cup final, signed on telly, and then he drove to Roker Park for the, a pre-season friendly. And after Newcastle played in the semi-final of the Cup and got to Wembley, he'd been given a sponsored car, which in those days they did. Now, you're not given a sponsored car because you've got five cars of your own, Mm -hmm. which is a Roller, a Ferrari, a a Lamborghini, whatever, whatever. He was given the sponsored car. The only trouble is, because it was sponsored, it had black and white stripes all over it and, and it said Geordie Legend or something of it, written all over the side of it. And he drove... To walk a park and parked it on the main forecourt before playing for Sunderland in the pre season friendly with all the Sunderland fans turning up. Can you imagine the reaction that caused down at Sunderland? First thing he did Monday morning, mind, was get in the car and get himself up to the, the people that had given him it and get a spray job done on it because it wasn't going to last. The incredible thing was that it become in only a couple of years at Sunderland, it become well loved by the Sunderland fans. The only other time I've known a legend swap positions up here and get away with it was Stan Anderson, who was a Sunderland legend as big as Bob was in Newcastle one, came to Newcastle again for two years and was wonderfully accepted because he was a quality player as a leader and captain of Newcastle. Bob did it the other way on people like Lee Clark tried to, to to go from one to the other and got massacred. But mind you, if you turn up at a Newcastle United Cup final with a T-shirt on, it, it, it's on about sad Macam so-and-sos, then you've got a good chance to lose a lot of your following on where side. But um, yeah, Bob and Bob told me I, it wasn't easy for him because he went down to Sunderland and the first thing Monty the legendary goalkeeper, remember the great double saves he made in the 73 Cup final against Leeds? The first thing Monty says to him when he come in, he says, I've hated you all my life. (laughs) He says, oh, thanks very much. This this is the the goalkeeper that's going to play behind you. Uh, Because he was a Newcastle legend who played in eight derbies, Newcastle, Sunderland, played them all for Newcastle, never for Sunderland. And he said he hated them. And then immediately... What happens? Bob Stoker, who loves him, makes him skipper and takes the armband of Bobby Kerr, who had picked up the FA Cup at Wembley, with the little general who was loved by the fans and picked up the FA Cup at Wembley, strips him of the captaincy, which sent Bobby Kerr ballistic, uh, and gives it to Bob Munker. And the fans also didn't like Robert in his first things there, but but I tell you what, his leadership his commitment, his big heart to the cause. The second year, he he was the, the rock at the back that got Sunderland promotion and the Sunderland fans voted him Sunderland Player of the Year. There you go. And no surprise, because, you know, like we've mentioned his leadership and
0: mm. his application. And, you know, he probably welcomed that little bit of a challenge to, to win the, the fans over. Off the pitch, John, what is Bob like? Is he the same today as he was Back then? Maybe a few less uh, Sherbits as you put it?
1: Yeah, uh, I think what you see is what you get with Bob. Um, he is honest as the day is long. He's very loyal to you if you're loyal to him. Uh, he's a true friend. He's been a true friend of mine since I first started with Newcastle United, and he was a kid then. We grew up together, um, and we've been through so much together. Goes to his book. Uh, he's been down my house. He's been uh, godfather to one of my girls, um, and he's still a friend today. Uh, he's an extra special guy. You know what people remember of Bob as well. They'll say, "Oh, a tough guy." because he had thighs like tree trunks and um, nobody went past him. Uh, and he was an organiser. But yet, Bob told me a couple of stories. When you knew the fam- f- uh family, Bob was a pussycat. Mm-hmm. Because I know his dad, Jock, I knew Jock ever so well, a man, mountain of a side, of a guy, who was a policeman back up in Scotland. And... Um, Off the field, Jock was as placid as possible to be. Evidently, on the field, when he played, he was a lunatic. He had a huge temper, etc., etc., and he used to play for the police. And he was sent off three times when he was playing for the police side. Uh, Bob didn't get red cards. Uh, He was sent off three times. And yet, Jock's younger brother, called Bert and Bob told me this story, he was twice suspended, signed, eye. Now, you might ask how it's possible to get suspended, signed, eye twice, considering you get suspended for life the first time. How can you play again and get suspended for life a second time? Uh, What happened? He was was a a little centre-half, and he was playing this day against a Scottish international, a former Scottish international, who was playing centre-half on the other side. And this Scottish international was kicking the hell out of a little centre-forward. So they Bert, the brother, decided, I'm not having this. So he went centre-forward against him. Um, and he ended up chinning him. Uh, he, he whacked the, the centre-half, got sent off, and as he got sent off... He smacked the referee. So signed die. Finished. That was him finishing the game. What did he do? Started playing again under the assumed, assumed name and got sent off again and got sent die. <laughs> so he must go in the record books as the only bloke that's been suspended, signed die twice. So perhaps Bob, the rock of granite at the heart of Newcastle's was just a pussycat, really. He's also a very funny guy,
0: which I suppose you only really get to to know if you've spoken to him a few times, or if you've got a good relationship like you have. But he's also very good, as we mentioned, in front of an audience. You know, he has them right in the palm of his hand. It's not just the stories he tells about his playing career and his managerial career, but just he's just a very funny bloke, and the story that he loves to dine out on. There's one particular story where you, which you are centre to oh, it. yes. And yeah, I'm just going to let
1: you uh, roll away with that. there. <laughs> Bob loves this one and he embellishes it. I mean, there's a grain of truth in it because there's a grain of truth in every story, <laughs> but he, he loves to embellish it. And, and it's part of the friendship we had. Um, it's when we played over, I think it was Sporting, he was Sporting Lisbon uh, on the way to winning the trophy. And we stayed in Hill, which was a posh end of, of town where, the, where everybody... Stayed that had a couple of quid, and then Newcastle and stayed. And um, after the game, we went because the guys couldn't drink before the game, could but they could afterwards. And we went to the Galito bar, I always remember this uh, because I'd been testing it out for Bob in the three nights before the game to see if it was good enough. Why doesn't that surprise me? You know, it's just to see if it was good yeah, enough yeah, for yeah. the team yeah, afterwards, and, uh, you know, and decided it was. So we all ended up in there. Now I've got to write my report after the game, because the next morning I'm phoning it over to the Chronicle. Um, but I ain't going to miss the, the jolly, am I? So I'm actually sitting in the Galito bar with the team, busy writing my, my story in longhand in a book. No laptops in that case, baby, none of that. This was the old time, longhand, in pencil, just so it was easier to rub out and change if you wanted to. <laughs> uh, so I'm sitting with with Bob and and... The tale, the way Bob tells it, he was buying Matthias Rosé, which was the drink then, and was a Portuguese drink, and he's buying bottles of Matias Rosé. And uh, I'm like, he's saying, how's it going, Gibbo? What are you saying? And he, and he said, have you got that bit in about my wonderful tackle in the second half? Now, so I said, all right, wonderful tackle. And uh, have you got in about uh, when Craigie? did it? All right. And these are quotes. Like. And so Bob reckons that he wrote my report completely for the Chronicle. I mean, I asked him afterwards why, if he wrote the report for a Chronicle, he needed me to ghost his life story. But nevertheless, he, he's he and it was wonderful because I was sitting next to the, the skipper in Newcastle United and playing in Europe and he's giving his quotes while I'm that I wasn't asking for while I'm sitting there. And of course, we give we give the old Matthias Rosier a bit of savage stick, uh, as you can imagine, and then trotted home to bed. And I, I always wrote my report normally before we went out on a night after a game because I ain't going to think of writing it when I get back to the hotel and then I put it on the side next to the phone Chronicle will phone in the morning phone ring pick it up dictate the copy across this particular morning the Chronicle must have phoned my never heard it never heard the phone ring at all and I'm Obviously asleep, still dreaming of Bob's wonderful tackles and what Craigie had done, etc. etc. The Chronicle, not able to get me, dawns on me that my good mate is Bob Moncur, who is just down the corridor in the hotel. So they phone Bob. Where's Gibbo? What, he's, he, he's in his room. Oh, but we can't raise him. So Bob rushes along the corridor, knocks on my door, bangs the door down. I wake up. What's right? Like? Chronicles on the phone. Oh. Pick up, he says, my legs didn't go over the side of the bed. Pick the phone up and start dictating a copy across. Wonderful poetry. Uh, and he always laughs and says that he dug me out the hole uh, there. And he loves telling that story. And you know when you catch a fish and it's about a foot long and by the time you tell the story a year later, it's two yards long. <laughs> the story's gone like that. But basically, the story tells, that Bob tells has got a little bit of truth. Over it, but uh, if he wrote that 500 words, I wrote the 60,000 words of his uh, so for his biography. So we did help each other in the end. <laughs> and then he moves on to Carlisle
0: and he ends up managing Carlisle. And the one thing that stands out about his time at Carlisle is the discovery of a certain Peter Beardsley. Absolutely. And the story about that is you know, he had to he had to fight to sign Peter Beardsley. And, and yep. It wasn't an easy, you know, the, 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 His uh, there was above him the hierarchy, he didn't believe there was anything mm. in Beardsley. And it turns out for me um, to be arguably the best player I've, I've ever seen in a Newcastle United shirt. And, well, and
1: what a spot by um, but I, I tell you what, uh, I'm older than you, Andrew, and um, he's the best player I've ever seen in a Newcastle United shirt, which is saying something because I've seen Newcastle for so long. Um, but, yeah, the, the interesting thing about that, you've got to remember, people forget what has gone under the radar is that he discovered not only Peter Beardsley, but another top, top Newcastle United player, Neil MacDonald, who at the age of 17 was a first team player at Newcastle United, uh, was a chop, chop player, and he discovered both of them. Um, the interesting thing about Peter Beardsley, Peter at the time was 18-year-old factory labourer. He was a factory labourer who had played for Walls End Boys Club <coughs> and had gone away all over the place um, for trials and um, never been able to get a club. I mean, he it, it went a lot of the places with Steve Bruce, who was also not wanted... And look what he'd become at Manchester United. The skipper is a player. Um, But there was this, was he good enough? And the reason why Peter couldn't get a club early was because he was small. Mm. And because he was small and a ball player, everybody thought when you got an eight-foot-six central half playing in the league against him, he'll smother him, he'll destroy him, and he won't be able to do it. Bob was... Tipped off about Beardsley by Brian Watson, who was his youth development officer, who was a bloke I got to know ever so well. He came on to work for Newcastle later, um, died tragically early on. But he he then went and played in a friendly, a Carlisle friendly at Blue Star, um, which... If you think of it, it's just outside Newcastle Airport. And when they, when we used to swear that when they put the lights on a blue star, three planes from Spain landed on the pitch (laughs) because they thought they were the landing lights for the airport because it was literally on top of the airport. He played in that game, he scored in that game, and Bob played in that game as well. Although he just wanted to see, and Bob's a defender, and they, and so he was having a good look at Beardsy. And he decided I've got to sign this guy. Now, the diamond in Ponteeland has, for donkey's years, been the watering hole for Newcastle United players, right from Bob's era right through to the current day. Um, and Bob took after the game, thought I can't lose this fella out, let him out my sight. He took. Peter Beardsley up to the diamond. And Peter Beardsley didn't drink, you know. Never has drunk, but he took him up to the pub because he wanted to talk to him and persuade him that he he should sign for him. And actually, Peter agreed. And the next day, he actually signed for Carlisle in the office of Billy Elliot at Don, who was manager at Donald, because Carlisle were playing a friendly at Dalton. and He took him down and he signed in the office. But before he signed... Bob went back to talk to the Carlisle board and he said, Look, I've got this young lad. I want to sign him. He's going to be the greatest. The board had never heard of them. They were being cynical. Oh, who is he? Never heard of him. What can he do? Oh, right? Don't know. And Bob's laying it on the line. You've got to trust me. You've got this guy can be a superstar, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And it was getting the money (coughs) to pay for his wages. And uh, Bob thought he'd won over the the whole of the board, and there was this one old guy sitting in the corner that normally evidently went to sleep during the board meetings and had to be nudged at the end of the board meeting to wake up and leave. And all of a sudden, Bob said, out the corner of my eye, and I'm quite triumphant because I think I've got this past a very difficult board. And James Bendel, the chairman, become a personal friend of Bob's, but uh, Bendel said to him, You've got to get the permission of the whole board, not mm. just me, for this guy, because he's unknown. And this guy put his, his hand up in the air, this director, and said, uh, Ma- Mr. Manja, I would like to ask you a question. And Bob said, yes, sir. He said, um, is it true that you made a rule when you come to this club that anybody that signed for Carlisle United had to live in a radius of X number of miles from Brunton Park? And Bob said, yes, that's right, uh, that's right. He said, so... This Peter Beardsley, I believe, lives in Newcastle United. uh, Lives in Newcastle. And he said, uh, yeah, that's right. He said, well, considering you've now spent all your budget that you've been given by the board, where's this man going to live when he signs for Carlisle? Because he's got to live in Carlisle on your rules, he said. And uh, we have no money to pay for lodgings for any new player. And Bob thought. The deal's gone and, and it's gone because of my own rules. And he was absolutely desperate and he knew this guy had right on his side and he had to answer him without time to think about it. So he suddenly got this big idea. I'll tell you what I, what he's going to do, sir. He said, he's going to live with Camille and I in our house for free. And the old guy had to go, oh. and uh, because that was be- a, the, the perfect answer. And for six months, uh, Peter did live in Bob and Camille's house, as it was said. And the amazing thing, not only had he got a gem, Bob, uh, and Peter only left after, after Bob had gone and when Bob Stoker was manager at uh, it, it one time, um, not only did he become a gem, but he actually met his wife, Sandra, through going to Carlisle because she was Bob Monker's secretary. And he ended up marrying and they're still happily together now. And, uh, well, I mean, you said, and I've agreed with you, uh, the ability of Peter Beardsley was frightening. Scary. And to think that it took Bob Monker at a club like Carlisle to give Peter his big break when he was good enough to win titles with Liverpool hmm. to be Bob, uh, to be Robson's little gem with England and to become a, a, another Newcastle legend like Monker by Joe Peter Bates is in Newcastle legend it's it's quite amazing but um yes that's on his CV as well most certainly And then we're off to Hart and he also had uh, jobs at Plymouth
0: and Hartlepool. And amongst that, there was always that feeling. I know you felt it. And I think Joe Harvey also had that feeling, even Bob himself, that one day he would return to Newcastle United, like uh, Joe Harvey had done, to manage the club and lead them on to, to
1: glory. But it just it just never happened. Yeah, that was his great ambition. Uh, and I was absolutely Certainly would do that. It's always been fascinating to look at players, when they're players, and decide if you think they're going to be good managers or not. I had no hesitation in putting Bob Munker down as managerial uh, material without a shadow of doubt. (coughs) I knew Frank Clark would be that. I thought John Tudor would be that and he never even moved into managership because he, he went out to Belgium as a player and got forgotten about and never got the opportunity. I never thought my good mate, Supermac, would make a manager because he enjoyed life far too much and we forget that he was now absolutely outstanding manager at Fulham mm. before other things happened. Um, and with Bob, I felt it was just a matter of time before he come back. He was politically correct he handled directors very very well as well as players and that's essential in any manager and I thought he would come back and he almost did what people don't realise that um, when he was at Hearts uh, and he got that job because that's Edinburgh and he used to live although he was born in Perth he used to live with Jock and his mum in Kirkliston which is just outside of Edinburgh which is why Hearts took him and when he was at Hearts uh, I acted as a go between between Bob and Newcastle United for him to come return to St James's Park and become Newcastle United manager. He had a clause in his contract which meant compensation had to be paid if some club took him. That was not so usual in those days as it is today, but he had that clause. I think, from my memory, it was forty grand. Uh, Newcastle United refused to pay the clothes to get him. The whole thing collapsed. It didn't happen. The speculation had come out that Newcastle were interested in him. I think I probably <laughs> was responsible for that uh, without any quotes. So immediately Bob said, Gibbo, I'm staying here because Newcastle won't pay the money, so I've got to make it look good at this end. So I drafted a, a press statement out in Bob's name sent it up to Bob and Bob read it out to the to the Edinburgh Press saying, You may have read about the speculation with Newcastle United, I'm staying here, I'm committed to doing this that near the with hearts. Great politician, as I've told you. Um, but I always felt that he was destined for Newcastle. The the good thing is, I guess, that he's ended up in his own way Back at Newcastle United, because he has a lounge that was named after him, and of course, so he should, the Bob Monker mm. Lounge, as there's a Joe Harvey one and a Bobby Robson one. Three outstanding people. He's an ambassador of the club still. On match days, he entertains old Newcastle players and various people upstairs have been up on Bob's table Does up there. Yeah,
0: the uh, Dementia Cafe as well which is yep, a great yep, initiative and yep. he's been a, a special guest there many times as well. And
1: he was very fleetingly on the board of directors in Newcastle that, with, yeah. with Ashley. And I think Bob has had a, a difficult time recently with fans being a legend and, and Peter Beardsley was a legend. He's been accused by fans of towing the political line with Mike Ashley and so is Peter Beardsley. Uh, and I find it, Tragic that there's a slightest suggestion of any image being tarnished by the Ashley situation mm. because these are two great legends, Beardsley and Monker, of Newcastle United. And I think what they did for Newcastle United should not be coloured by anything no, small at all. that's happened since. I mean, Mon-
0: um, Moncur loves the role he's got. He loves to still be involved in Newcastle. Absolutely. And, and being a representative of this Absolutely. club. Absolutely. And there's a lot of stuff that, I mean, we're not going to reveal, but there's a lot of stuff that does go on behind and never gets to the public. Uh, you know, it never comes out in the public that, you know, Moncur doesn't always toe the line. And, you know, he's, he does... Um, He fights for the best of the club, doesn't he? He wants what's best. What
1: what he's always done, Andrew, and you're right, what he's always done is present one image publicly, which is that he is a big supporter of the club and club policy, and he would do that as a player, as captain, Hmm. and then fight like hell behind the scenes for what he feels is right and ought to be happening yeah. but you wouldn't air any dirty linen in public which is the way to grow about it i think in some circumstances
0: um you know if it doesn't rock the boat publicly does it and sometimes it's better what's that old saying it's better to be inside the tent than or is yeah. it yeah whatever you know either
1: say i'm trying to get yeah i you, do you know i do know. i'm trying to make it there. i do know exactly i mean the, the wonderful thing about bob Uh, And he will be part of the Newcastle fabric forever. And Mm. I mean, forever, long after Bob and and myself have joined hands and jumped off the time bridge into oblivion, he will still be a Newcastle United legend. But he was a wonderful sportsman, and people don't realise how much of a natural sportsman. I mean, he was a superb golfer. He twice won the Professional Footballers Golf Championship, which in the old days was huge. Mm. Um, he twice won that for the whole of the country. Uh, absolutely chop man. Squash, he was a wonderful player. He owned his own squash club in Gateshead at the height of squash being the in-sport and played regularly in the leagues up here. Sailing, he, he competed in the round Britain and Transatlantic races, um, was chop-chop man, skipper boat that he had anchored in the West Indies, and he was Captain Bob taking businessmen around the area. And amazingly, at bowls, at 13 in Kirk Liston, he stopped playing bowls. Can you imagine an old man's <laughs> game and Bob played bowls, green bowls? Uh, and he, he entered the Leith Open... When he was a kid at Newcastle, an apprentice at Newcastle, he entered the Leith Open Bowls competition in Scotland. Went up to play in it, and the big guy at Newcastle United, the superstar skipper, was, was uh, Schooler, Jimmy Schooler, who picked up the cup in 55. And Schooler went to watch him playing the semi-final at least in the bowls and wished them all the best. Bob said the only, the only downer was that he lost the flipping semi-final with Schooler watching him. Uh, and he, he was a schooler type um, captain as well because Schooler was was like Harvey, was like Monker, but he was a natural sportsman. Whatever he turned his hand to uh, was a success. And the great thing in my life Old age doesn't give you much because you're getting nearer to meeting the Grim Reaper. But what it does give you is the ability to have seen an awful lot in your lifetime. And I've been privileged in my Newcastle United lifetime to have been a little kid, starry-eyed, and watched Jackie Milburn win the FA Cup for us. To be a young reporter in my 20s and watch Bob Monker and Craigie and Clarkie and all the boys win a European Cup for us. To be in my 30s and watch Super Mac go to Wembley for us and to be a lot older but not the age I am now and watch Alan Shearer smash the goal scoring record. See To see that many club legends in a lifetime is a privilege And when I look at Newcastle today and I think, where's the next legend coming from? I don't know that I'm watching one at the moment. But let's get in the transfer market. Let's find somebody great. Let's find another legend. Because people like Moncur, people like Milburn, people like Shearer, people like Supermac are what keeps this old heart going.
0: I think, ladies and gents, that is the perfect way to sign off. I don't think we could have signed off in any better fashion than that from John. Thank you once again for opening up your book of memories. Delighted. It's been a, been Delighted. a pleasure. We're going to shoot off now. If you're watching on YouTube, um, please remember to like and subscribe to the channel. If you're as usual listening on the podcast, thank you very much. We'd love a little review down in the bit where you can leave us a review. If it's five star, that would be even better. Um, and just, keep safe and we'll uh, be back next month with another episode of Give Us Corner Cheers so just a quick note we're now over on YouTube at the Everything is Black and White podcast and if you're liking what you're hearing why not come and see what we're producing we'd really like you to hit subscribe we're also over on Instagram at ChronicleNUFC and in the usual place on Twitter and Facebook we'd really like the likes the reviews and the subscriptions because without your continued support we can't get very far so thanks
1: very much for listening